Please be advised that the following podcast explores intersecting themes of poverty, mental health, and physical disability. You may find some scenes distressing. Before you continue, if you haven't already, please complete our listener participation survey by following the links in the show notes. Welcome to Storied Lives, a podcast that looks at the lived realities of poverty from an intersectional lens. This is Episode 1, Saving Grace. I come from up north, way up north. Worked 30 years at a pulp mill. Never fully retired, you know. Just semi-retired. My pension's not enough. Mostly I only eat one meal a day so I can still pay the rent. Work odd jobs in construction, mostly roofing, to make ends meet. This one side is a total death trap, and the foreman treats us like human jackhammers. Always spit screaming to work faster, grinding his teeth about how he could have had a Mexican or a Honduran and for half the price like that, and snapping his fingers in your face. And he cuts corners, mostly around safety. Long story short, I fall three stories when a rusted out scaffold collapses. I land on a pile of bricks and my back explodes into a million pieces. There's not enough resources to support my recovery up in the bush, so... I moved down to South Ontario, but I'm not used to these many people. I go into big glass government buildings all echoey and white, and all of a sudden, I can't breathe, and my vision goes fuzzy. Takes me months to stand it long enough to fill out a single ODSP form. I stay in a small township down the road. Friend of a friend rents me a couch in his mudroom and on disability, I can't barely afford even that. Money bleeds out. Fast. Can't afford a car, so I cab 90 minutes to doctor's appointments every week. I gotta walk to the expensive grocery store instead of driving to the nearest town with a discount grocery store. Little grocer in town, they don't have regular food there. It's all for the people in the multi-million dollar mansions off the highway. They call it boutique and a tisnal. Fifteen dollars for a tiny salad, and I don't even know how to pronounce half the ingredients, so all the young girls behind the counter snicker at me. I'm not an idiot. i just never seen that stuff up north. Maybe they laugh because of how I con out the dimes and nickels for a coffee, or because that time I smell like bedbug fumigant. Or because I only own one pair of jeans with the back pocket ripped off. Either way, I don't even bother anymore. Sometimes my back is so bad, I can't walk there anyway. The guy I run from, sometimes he drives me to one of the big food marts that have coupon flyers. But every time he offers, my gut sinks and I think maybe it's easier to just give up. Getting into his car feels like I'm not my own person. Just an inconvenient charity case. A little voice, you're a burden, you're a failure, fogs up my mind till all I can do is sleep. Mostly I don't have food in the house. Just a little tuna can or an apple. Coffee and cigarettes suppress your appetite, so that helps. Even finding new socks. I had to get a ride because you couldn't even buy socks or underwear in my township. Meanwhile, the coach is tearing my back apart and the mudroom's hardly insulated, so I'm only ever wheezing and hacking and shooting pain through every nerve I got. I'm on a wait list to get housing in town closer to more job options, 
closer to a real hospital. I don't hear back. Trying to find a real home is damn near impossible. No one will rent to me on ODSP. Put in an application and all of a sudden the rent would jump up. They just don't want me there. On top of that, I got a dog. And you know it's hard out there. Some people, they don't make it out alive. I've lost people. Good friends I made along the way. They're not with us anymore. Suicided. I couldn't take it. Anyway, this dog helps me get up in the morning. I call her Grace, my saving Grace. But no one wants a dog in their apartment. I finally get into this unfinished basement. I call it the boiler room. A mattress next to the hot water tank. Laundry down there too, so the landlord always has an excuse to come down and hiss at me at what I should be doing with my life. I had my medications too. She thinks I'm an addict and pretends to lose things so she can come down and ruffle through my stuff. Later I found out from the utilities company they say you've been paying for her alarm system and her water and on and on. If I took legal action, which I could never afford anyway, then nobody in that town would rent to me. I'd be blacklisted. Landlords all talk and golf together. After rent, I can barely afford to get to my appointments. I limp around with old painkiller prescriptions crinkling in my pocket for months because I don't have the money to fill them. Eventually, she kicks me out to run to the basement and double her profits. I get a lead on a full-time job in the big city. But I can't afford a moving truck, so I leave all my stuff behind. And I still have to take out a money lender loan to pay for first and last and a security deposit and buy a used twin mattress so my back don't seize up sleeping on the carpet. When I get to the job site, the foreman's been replaced. The new guy tells me he don't know nothing about me. He don't need me anymore. At every hour I'm not working, I feel the money lender interest creeping up and up. When I finally patch together enough part-time jobs and contracts and temp work, still takes forever to pay it off. In the meantime, housing from before calls me. I don't get no housing. I hang out before they can tell me all about the rules and how they wish it were different. Big city grinds me into the dirt. I got nothing left. So I come back to town and guess what? Housing calls me from the city. Missed it again. One last time I apply in town. Nothing. Six years go by on the list and I never get housing. When I arrive back in town, I'm paying $1,300 a month to live in a hotel room until my buddy and I find an apartment. The rent is over 2200 I can barely scrape together the first month. Miraculously, my social worker gets me rent bank, and I get my entire last month's rent paid. They literally saved my life that day. Still, the second month, my roommate couldn't work. He got sick and took to hospital, so I had to pay double. Nearly killed me. But rent's been killing me for years. So my name's Elsa Mann, and I'm team lead for something called the Rural Wellington Community Team. And we're made up of outreach workers that support individuals that live in rural Wellington Some of the things that we do, first and foremost, is we listen to the people that we support, ask them what's most important to them, and we help them to put a plan together to achieve the things that are on their list. 
And I know this term, meeting people where they're at, is the social work buzz, but it truly is. You have to be with people that are living that life in order to understand how they're living, how they're managing, how they're coping, to help them find the tools, the steps, the skills to get them living a better and healthier life. I struggle with the term social safety net. Our culture, our public feels that a social safety net is, it's a really good thing. And I have flipped in my head in terms of thinking about that term. It is a social safety net, but it's not a net that actually catches you. It's one that entangles you. For those people that get on Ontario Works, we watch people's health deteriorate if they're not engaged in their community, if they're not doing meaningful work, if they're not seen positively in the community. And so we have many times seen people slide from Ontario Works to the point where they're unwell emotionally or mental health-wise, or they've begun coping with substances. Then they get to a point where We're assessing whether they have a disability under the criteria of Ontario Disability Support Program. I can definitely see a mental health decline in people that stay connected to social services over a long period of time. It's harder and harder and harder to climb out of that net that's supposed to be a safety net. It's not until you have to experience that or you know somebody close to you in your family, in your friend circle or whatever, you get enraged with, well, how are people supposed to do that? How are you supposed to live on, you know, $733 a month? Where where can you actually rent a room? Where can you rent anything? How do you eat? How do you, you know, how do you function? And sometimes people don't find a place to live. And then they're forced to couch surf or whatever. You don't have a place to live. You can't get a shelter allowance. You can get your basic needs. So now you've got $343 to live on over the course of the month. How do you crawl out of that net? It's really unbelievable to think that some people do. I have to say the majority of people don't. We don't have any way of transitioning people that really is significant. There are some, some ways that our system needs to shift in order to help people move forward and out of that net. When I hear people say things like, you know, they just need to get a job. There are so many barriers to just getting a job. How do you transition from being on Ontario Works to working? It's that emotional lack of confidence that might come with being on assistance for a long period of time. It's about the judgment you might feel if people know that you've been on assistance and are now there at work. How do you get there physically? You know, what kind of work is available? If it is shift work, how does that lend itself to families or single parents? The whole childcare thing. So many people that are experiencing a disability that live in poverty have a complex situation because it is a cumulative effect that has created their disability. Those pain meds are often there to manage the the pain of the trauma not just the physical manifested pain in the back. And although on social assistance and ODSP, you do have benefits covered, not all medications are covered. So sometimes people have to choose between food and medications. 
those are really hard choices for an individual to make. I wanted to touch on WSIB. The employer is always going to be reluctant for a WSIB claim because it means having to change something on their end or having to be without an employee for a period of time. And all of those things are a hassle and cost money. Right away, as the employee or the client, you feel like the problem. The process takes so much time to get ironed out. They never seem to know when is their money coming? When am I going to be approved? What is happening? It's very demoralizing. With their limited income, they may find themselves living in unsafe or substandard housing. They may end up staying in a bad relationship because there's nowhere else to go. They may start to cope using substances. And the thing that I, I have seen on a number of occasions is people returning to work in pain and returning to work with abuse in the workplace because they feel that being without that income is worse than being exposed to that, that injury again and again. It's another part of our system that's a little bit broken is that you have to wait until you've depleted almost all of your savings before you're eligible for some of these supports. There's no sliding scale <laughs> where you can be eligible for a little bit of support if you need a little bit of support. No, we have to wait until you're right on the flat on the ground in terms of your financial situation, and then we'll pick you up. But we'll only pick you up this far. So in some communities, I see people losing their homes after having an injury or you know having a disability set in. And I see them going from having a house to losing their house and depleting their savings and then coming back to me a few years later. Now they're flat on the ground and they need that support to lift them up, which is horrible to think that that's what has to happen. It's another thing in rural communities that you don't see the way you do in urban centers is you tend not to see people out on the street. In a rural community, that homelessness is often quite hidden. People are flopping at different places at different times. People are living rough in the woods. People are sleeping in their cars. When I think about the person in our story sleeping on the couch, having back pain, not having a good night's sleep, you need rest in order to heal. You need food. And if you don't have those things, if you don't have that rest, you're just living in a fog. A lot of people that live in poverty have been experiencing that fog. They don't have a, a safe place to stay, so they're always moving. They have no security that way and knowing where they're sleeping that night or they're sleeping on a couch. And any one of those things in and of itself may not sound like a big deal, but for 365 days out of the year has a huge impact on your health and well-being. The whole notion of poverty comes with huge stigma. But to envision what it's like for somebody to live rurally who lives in poverty, it's exponentially more intense. So if I'm living in poverty and I go to the grocery store, I likely know that cashier. If I have to put food back because I don't have enough money, that person knows me. They probably know my family. With accessing food banks and food pantries rurally, that stigma piece really can come to the surface there. Having those volunteers means they probably know you or know of you. You also have to do an intake sheet. 
In that intake sheet, you have to identify what your income is, what your rent is, how much your utilities are, how much are your other expenses. So you feel very exposed and can feel very less than. When we support people rurally, one of the things that we really try and combat because of that stigma piece is isolation. Because there's a direct correlation between that sense of connection and, and belonging and wellness. If programming and events and community gatherings are more inclusive, people living in poverty become part of the community as opposed to an, a separate group of people. They become seen as just like everybody else in the community. So one of the things I wanted to touch on from the story was when the individual was asking for a ride to get to the grocery store, and it makes me think of all the uncomfortableness that goes with getting around in a rural community. So in a rural community, it's not like you can just hop on a bus because there is no bus. You can't get a cab because it's too much money. Getting from community to community, there isn't anything available for that that is cost-effective. Fortunately, we have recently experienced some transportation kind of infrastructure programs, but it's a direct line. So if you are in any community that's offline, you might as well be in another province. We also have a new ride program um, that's kind of like a ride share. You've got to book in advance. You've got to have a registered account. You've got to have a credit card. You've got to have a cell phone so you can navigate where that where that ride is and when, you've got a two-minute window when that ride arrives to get in the car or they leave. So for those people living with complexity, anything that's that rigid is just really not an option for them. In smaller communities, we've got small food banks. They run on a really limited time. They're likely only open a day, a week. In our rural community, in addition to how food banks and food pantries operate, a lot of our services are only Monday to Friday, nine to five sorts of services. So outside of your nine to five, Monday to Friday, your only support's available to you if you're feeling unwell or unsettled or whatever is to call a crisis line or to show up at the ER. And neither one of those is necessarily the the right fit for, for what you might need. If you are a homeless individual and you're seeking emergency shelter, there are no emergency shelters in rural Wellington. There is only emergency shelter in Guelph. And at that, we're at a wait list capacity. So it's not necessarily something that if I decided I definitely want to get out of this bad situation or this place is just, I can't sleep on that couch for one more night like our person in the story. There's not even a bed available for you, even if you could figure out a way of navigating yourself from getting from point A to point B. So sometimes when my team supports people rurally, we see them transition to an urban center, whether that be Guelph or something larger, because they are fleeing something. Maybe they're fleeing homelessness and they're looking for a shelter bed or they're fleeing domestic violence and they're looking for a safe shelter space. They might be going into treatment center because there are no local treatment centers. But if you try and access shelter space, 
it's not considered your community. So you're denied shelter space there. So these geographic boundaries can wreak havoc sometimes with what people feel is a hopeful solution. In terms of what's needed in a rural community, first and foremost, in my opinion, is equity. In terms of food banks and the way that those supports could be shifted to reduce stigma, we can make it more equitable by giving people the dignity of being able to go and choose what they would like for themselves. And in our smaller communities, we don't necessarily have the ability to have our own pantry where people can come and pick and choose the food. We don't have the infrastructure to kind of keep that going like you do in an urban center. But in our small communities where you have one grocery store, having the ability to go up and down the aisles and pick what you want would be fantastic incentivize or celebrate those rural employers who provide a living wage. In Wellington County, that's $18.10 an hour. I'd like to see all employers have their logos plastered everywhere for those employers that are doing this because we can encourage people to spread that concept. I'd like to see municipalities look at how they could change their bylaws to allow for more rental accommodation in existing housing stock. When I think about seniors struggling to manage their property tax in their house, living alone, I think about the opportunities that exist for them to have somebody move in with them. I'd like to see more support for rent gear to income and affordable housing builds, but incorporate social housing into the community in a way that brings people together and doesn't separate people. Make an effort to solicit and listen to the needs of all the constituents Give those individuals a voice to talk to municipal leaders about what living in poverty is like in their community, and then take what they've shared and put that into their municipal plan to address. If you asked people that live in poverty what they need, they can tell you quite clearly what they need. They need supports with dignity and respect, and they need to be heard and understood. When they, they have that and the foundation of a place to live and enough food, those basic needs covered, they can move forward and they, and they do move forward. The question is, do we have enough of that in place right now to make that happen? Thanks for listening to Storied Lives. If you haven't done so already, please complete the follow-up survey by clicking on the link in the show notes. To create the story that begins this episode, we invited people living with poverty to share their stories with us. During a series of focus groups, participants revealed their unique experiences and how these are impacted by multiple, overlapping, and compounding oppressions. Using their testimonies, we composed four composite stories, including the one you just heard. These are fictional stories based on real experiences. Every scenario in these stories happened or was informed by themes that emerged in the focus groups. This four-part podcast series is a collaboration of the Guelph and Wellington Task Force for Poverty Elimination and the University of Guelph's Live Work Well Research Center and Community Engaged Scholarship Institute. Stories by Aidan Lockhart. Producer, Zoe Barrettwood. 
Please see the show notes for a list of all the people involved in the creation of these podcasts. This podcast was funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and received ethics approval from the University of Guelph Research Ethics Board. We deeply appreciate the guests who spoke with us and the people experiencing poverty who shared their stories. Thank you.